I discuss a yeah. lot with Johnny. The thesis is the same. We still want to support the ecosystem because being right. a founder has taught us a lot. It influences every part of our lives, even when it comes to how we deal with our family and our children and each other for the better. So we want to help pay it forward by sharing all these experiences. We can share just by giving talks, but there's a better way to right. share by putting our money where our mouth is and then engaging the founders after that. So that what has changed is how systematic we go about in terms of how we find deals, do the asset allocation, how we decide how much to invest, when to follow on, what are all the factors we look out for, the relative weightages right. of those factors. Those are the things that are being refined. But the underlying reason and philosophy, I think is still the same. We just want to share our knowledge. We want to keep learning. We want to stay relevant. And of course, we, we believe in our ecosystem. Welcome to Brave. Learn from Southeast Asia's best tech leaders. Build the future, learn from our past, and stay human in between. No BS on success. I'm Jeremy Au, venture capitalist, serial founder, Harvard MBA, science fiction nerd, and dad of two daughters. Every week, we debate startup news, interview changemakers, answer listener questions, and share personal insights. Join our movement of over 20,000 members and get transcripts, resources, and community at www.braveseah.com. Meet Rinkas, your go-to digital mortgage platform breaking down financial barriers for home seekers across Indonesia and Southeast Asia. They operate in more than 15 cities in partnership with all major Indonesian banks and premier property developers. Rinkas is on a mission to democratize homeownership and create over 100 million new homeowners. Don't just dream about owning a home, make it a reality. Explore more at www.ringcast.co.id. Hey, Tershing, really excited to have you on the show. You are, of course, a great angel investor in Southeast Asia, one of the OGs, but also I've been following your blog for the past half a year, and I think it's a very fascinating, I think, analysis, obviously, of angel investments and VC startups. But also, I really appreciate everything that you shared about your personal life and family life as well. So I thought it was a really interesting blend. So I got to plug it, it's Lim Dershing at Blogspot. .com, so you still have that, but I would love for you to introduce yourself real quick. Yeah, okay. Hi, hi, Jeremy. Yeah, thank you for inviting me for the podcast. So as viewers know, I'm a manager Shing. So 48 this year, she another one of your interviews, Shaoning, was my other half. I met her back in Michigan when I was 21. So that's a good 27 years. Married, we have four children, age 21 to 9. And uh, I think our call to fame is that before we were angel investors, we used to run our own job portal. So it was one of the original job portals that started back in 2000. It's called Job Central. And then we built it for 14 years. And at the 11th year, we actually sold it to a career builder. And since then, we officially retired in 2014 and then went through a pretty long nine-year journey of trying to find a new career, a new purpose that perhaps is not so consuming like being a founder of a startup. And what we shit on was angel investing, as you rightly pointed out. So since 2015, 2016, we've been very active angel investors, almost 50 companies, almost 10 million of our own money into different startups and VC funds, most of it all in Southeast Asia. So that's how we see ourselves now. At least for myself, the purpose is really just to give back the system. Of course, you want to make some money along the way. 
way, be as useful as I can while watching my children grow up. Amazing. And how did you first enter entrepreneurship? You were an engineer in the early days, but how did you enter yeah, space so entrepreneurship? That's, yeah, that's really a whole story. So we started, I started a business. I studied in Michigan. I studied there uh, electrical engineering from 96 to 99. So that was the first dot-com boom, if you business, remember. And so when we came back, we said, hey, we really want to start a business. And at that time, Shaolin was my girlfriend. And then it's so cool to do it together as boyfriend, girlfriend. That's another story. But then we started it. <laughs> and then we were lucky. La. We picked an area that is quite profitable almost from day one. You know, job portals mm. are always profitable if you run it well. And then also, I think my personality helped a lot because back then mm. I was ultra competitive. I think that's one major right. defining trait of a good entrepreneur. And then I was also very determined that I know I, I want to be free from people telling me what to do as soon as I can. Which almost right. means that for certain, I cannot have a boss. It just doesn't work. Even though I was a scholar. So I decided to break right. my bond and then start a jobs factory back then. We shouted and then we brought on two more partners along the way. So yeah. that's the inception story. Like, actually, Google it is all over the place. You said there's another story about what's it like to build a business of Shaoning, right? Your then girlfriend. So I got to yeah. ask. She's been on the podcast yeah. before. She shared about her journey, yeah. but I'm so curious what that story is. Yeah, so it's very hard to work with your spouse until mm. you hit onto a really deep understanding of each other. And mm. not just your strengths, but your temperaments, your real needs and your real wants. Mm. If you don't do that, then as you grow, there's a lot of potential for division, a lot of potential mm. for big arguments, and you could end right. up losing the relationship. And then the business right. may still go downhill. So yeah. I think yeah. there's a lot of learning in terms of trying to understand what drives my spouse, what she's interested in. And I have to say, that part is actually far more challenging than running a business. Because right. business is actually just... Be obsessive, do everything right. If you're smart enough, if you assemble the right team, you probably pick the right space, you probably can make some money. Of right. course, it's different from building a unicorn versus building something that just makes a few million profit. So building a few million profit just needs those factors. A unicorn right. needs a lot more stuff. Yeah, but yeah. try to understand your spouse so that you become a good husband or wife and right. at the same time be good business partners. I think that one is very difficult to do it well. Right. So that's why I say right. that one is a lot more challenging and you'll meet many husband and wives teams. Wow, the dynamic uh, is always very interesting to watch. I mean, you see them all the time because you're an angel investor. You see a lot of husband and wife teams, especially in Southeast Asia. And I met my wife while we were both volunteering together. And we also had some of that similar tension as well. But of course, we were volunteering. So it's quite different from running a business, right? In that point of time. So do you have any advice for people who are building with their husband or wife? What advice do you normally give them? Okay, so I'm not a big guy on advice, if you know yeah. me. So I yeah. actually believe very much in share a story. The other person needs to be sharp enough to figure out the learnings from the story, whether it applies to them. So yeah. I can only speak from my own experience. So my own experience, what I would have done differently was to actually understand my wife's motivations much earlier mm. and subordinate that crazy desire to just win for the first 10 years. Right. So for the first right. 10 years of my business, I really right. just wanted to make it. I just wanted to right. prove a point that the idea is worth the effort. My team is worth right. the effort. We can reach fast enough. We don't have to care about anybody's opinions anymore. Mm -hmm. In terms as a boss. Right. And I assume that my other half is willing to subordinate everything mm -hmm. alongside me in the same way. I think it would have been much wiser if I figured out what she really wants and what she really dislikes and then incorporate that into the drive. It probably will still, the business will still have worked actually. There are many ways yeah, to skin yeah. a cat, especially for a business cat. It doesn't have to be the only way. The My way is the only way. So if I have right. any learning, I think that would be the key learning. Spend more yeah. time aligning my other half so that it's mm. not do everything exactly the way I want it or it doesn't work kind of attitude. 
So I learned that later only after we sold the business and then I stopped paying. I stopped being obsessive about the business. So once I stopped mm. being obsessive about the business, then the rest of my personality kicks in. What's the rest of your personality? Oh, I'm actually a very chill guy. <laughs> okay, this is just my viewpoint. Uh. I think yeah, maybe yeah. other people can do it differently. Yeah. But for yeah. me, to make a business work, I have to be obsessive. Right. As in 110% yeah. obsessive. I live and breathe the numbers. I just think about it all day long. I think about how yeah. every single thing, whether it can be done better or not. And right. I'm always thinking about what the competitors are doing, who are the potential ones, how can I win them. Every right. little edge counts. Because you must remember, I started with no funding and I started as a third mm. player. I have a natural two-sided network that's being built as the forerunner or the second runner. Right. right. So really, right. the way we win is by really just out-thinking and out-executing every small step. Then it, adds, then it builds right. a momentum. Right. But to do that, I ignore everybody else and everything else. It just, I think that's what it takes for many people to succeed. But I'm not sure right. it's something that why is it you ask me about what would I what I would advise. Yeah. And based on that, after that, you said that you were able to sell a company, the rest of your personality emerged. And then I think that's roughly when you also started entering angel investing as well. So could you talk a little bit more yeah, about yeah. how you started angel investing? Yeah, it all comes together because as right. an angel investor, we are cheerleader. We are counselor, yeah. we are cheerleader, we are more technically, we are sometimes board director, but it's all subordinate roles. It's all cheerleading roles, yeah. side roles. It's not the main actor. It's all supporting cast. Right. So being a right. supporting cast, you have to be far more conscious about the emotions, the motivations, and how you go about doing your supporting. So I think having, allowing the not so my way or highway, everything is do or die attitude that an entrepreneur needs yeah. is very different from as a supporting cast. What I need is actually more of a nurturing, paying attention, trying to yeah. match. And yeah. of course, then I mitigate my own risk because I have 50 investments. If yeah. you don't want to listen, it's fine. It's one out of 50. And who knows, you may be right yeah. anyway. So the, it all comes together. Having a personality that pays more attention to other people, trying to find mm. consensus, trying to counsel, trying to coach, actually fits a lot better for an angel investor than a central. Yeah. And you mentioned that there's also was a personality shift or at least you got to open up your other side of your personality other than the obsessive side that you described. Do you feel like that fits with you better yeah, now? it's not just obsessive. Investor? It's obsessive and very hard-nosed. It's very ruthless. Yeah. Because that's what right. it takes to win. Especially for right. a winner-take-all type of dynamic. Some markets, you don't right. have to be like that because there can yeah. be 20 profitable players at FAB. But right. not for a two-sided network. That, and it's only room right. for three. Yeah. And uh, when you start out angel investing, obviously, that was quite some time ago. And then, you know what I really appreciate about your blog is, is you document your learnings. You document your learnings as you went up. And then you also document, I think, the recent downturn. And I think yeah. you did another update because now it's been what a year, one year into the downturn so there's another update you wrote recently so I think you could see you integrate those learnings but I'm just curious between when you started angel investing and where you are today I'm wondering what the difference in your own angel investing philosophy or approach is I think the thesis is still the same Jeremy so I discussed a yeah. lot with Shaolin well, that's why yeah. I said that when you interview her actually a lot of the things should, you know, would be covered so the thesis is the same we still want to support the ecosystem because being right. a founder has taught us a lot influences every part of our lives even when it comes to how we deal with our family and our children and each other for the better and so we want to help pay it forward by sharing all these experiences so of course we can share just by giving talks but there's a better way to right. share by putting our money where our mouth is and then actually then engaging the founders after that so that hasn't changed I think what has changed is the way how systematic we go about in terms of how we find deals how we mm. pick the deals how we do the asset allocation, how we decide how much to invest, how we decide when to follow on, what are all the factors we look out for, the relative weightages right. of those factors. Those are the things that are being refined. But the underlying reason and philosophy, I think is still the same. We just want to share our knowledge 
We want to keep learning. We want to stay relevant. And of course, we believe in our ecosystem and we hope to get a return from it. Right. Because when we cashed out, then we have no more stake in the ecosystem. So we say, hey, let's take right. out $5, million, let's put back in the ecosystem, see what happens. Right. And it's quite a sizable yeah. chunk for us. Right? We, I didn't cash right. out for a few hundred million. So it's still quite a sizable for yeah. us. So we want to s- still have our chip in the game. But of course, we participate right. now with a different role. And during this time, you've seen the evolution of the ecosystem because you've been doing this at the frontier of these early stage companies, but you've done this over so many years now. Obviously, there's all these theoretical market reports about how the ecosystem has changed. But for you personally, what do you think, what do you personally feel has been the biggest change from your perspective? Oh, I think the biggest change would be the quality and quantity of talent we are getting, both at the founder right. and employee level. And that's most important right. because the people drive right tech businesses. So right. it's a world apart, right? When we started back in 2000, there was one boom, but the boom died very quickly. And even yeah. then, the great talent at that time was still going to the banks, the consultancies, the investment banks, yeah. right? Now, actually, we routinely see very good quality talent from Ivy Leagues yeah. or from mid-careers who want to start business or who right. are willing to join a business. I think that's the single right. biggest differentiating factor and that also accounts right. it's both a consequence and a reason for why the ecosystem right. is where it is now like, because the more successes you get the more stories of people coming out and doing well then you have more people going in so it's a virtual cycle right. and I think we are on to that cycle if I were to critique the only thing missing is exits and unfortunately this last two years hasn't helped uh, because this last mm. two years deferred all the exits there were supposed to be quite mm. a few specs from Predigo from Ninja Van from mm. Shopback even so all of them got help back two years. Yeah. So that yeah. doesn't help because all our money becomes locked up another two years. So yeah. we need yeah. more exits. If I have to have another critique, it will be that the test now is for the bulk of our founders to learn to make real positive cash flow and profits. That is mm. the real test on the table now because this last 10 years of cheap has actually worked quite a lot of people to think that uh, revenue is the main metric. But I think now mm. it's changed that EBITDA and profit matter as much, depending right. on which sector you're in, how fast it's growing and all that. But by and large, yeah. the importance has spiked up. And I think a lot of people still don't really understand what it means that you, every dollar you sell, you should be keeping 10% or 20 or 30 or 40% as profits. And how do you run a business at that size? You can't have a lot of fat. Right you must be willing right. to take pain. It's right. Because the investors are not willing to use our cash to take away your pain for you anymore. Yeah, I think right. that one is a very big point. If interest rates stay at this level another one year or two years, I'm very sure you'll go back to the old days, pre this boom in 2009 yeah. and 10 August. Yeah. But if it doesn't, uh, if the interest get cut, then maybe you'll go back to rara days again. Uh. Party days again, yeah. yeah. It I got think, a bit too crazy. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, it got crazy. Super crazy. And I think part of that craziness or so is I think founder in the early days, it was not, it was a job or profession in that sense. But now it's also, there's a lot of like hero status, role model. And so I meet a lot of young folks teenagers who really want to be a founder because they see, I guess, the TV series, the movies, the press. I'm so curious about what you think because you're a father of four and so I'm just curious about that. Yeah, so I hang out with a lot of non-tech business owners. They can be running 100 over 200 million dollar businesses. They are very profitable. Actually, that to me, that is business as much a business as any tech business and to me the purpose of business is to serve a need and make a profit in the process you get a bit bigger then maybe you have loftier goals for your business that's fine but by and large most businesses you serve a good need you do a good legal service to me ideally don't harm people don't do the sin stock stuff but but then Mm, make a profit in the process so i think it's good to have role models but the role models need to include 
non-tech role models and then you synthesize for, self, for yourself what kind of business you want to build and what kind of man or woman you want to be. So I've been telling our portfolio companies don't look at Grab, look at C because C put their money where their mouth is, right? They take the $1 salary, they cut all flights, all business class flights, cut costs so dramatically that even I hear even genie contracts are being renegotiated and it right. shows up in the numbers. Yeah, And if you look at the FANG stocks, they are far more like C than they are like Grab. So right. the answer is that you have to be profitable on the revenues and the gross margins that you have. If not, it's still not a solid business. Yeah. And I think that's the tricky part that you mentioned about solid businesses. How, I think a lot of founders are like feeling quite stuck because they're like, okay, how do I build a solid business? But I also need to fundraise and have a very good story about the kind of like growth rate. How do you share stories with them about how to think about it? Yeah. Yeah. So this one is tricky. There's no hard and fast rule. Mm. Every founder right. needs to look at your own business and figure out for yourself. Right. Is yours a winner take yeah. all? Is there already a winner that has taken all? If truly you are in something super blue ocean and brand new, then yes, by all means, carry on the great way, carry on because there will be people who will find you because there's right. always risk capital that way. And if you can't find it, right. that means there's something off. You, there's something off. You better figure out what's off. But I think most of the businesses, they think they are that kind, but they're actually not. For right. example, a lot of the e-commerce retail stores. I mean, I don't want to name the names, but I'm actually right. indirectly invested in one. They are never worth five, ten times their revenue in the first place. Right. So you have to right-size your entire outfit. If you really care about your business, right. you should right-size the whole right. thing to fit what you're doing. And to me, right. look less at Shin and all that, but look more at Charles and Keith. The right. guy is super profitable. Yeah. He's probably a billionaire right. by now. What's wrong with yeah. building something like him? He's got tons of TD to C sales. Right. Yeah. So sometimes I feel, I mean, the time for a lot of fluff to raise money and then keep rolling it is over. La. So you have to decide does your business belong to the category that I need to hunker down and scale down dramatically? Right. And then yeah. so that I preserve the options for what I built rather than rely yeah. on my VC funding me. Because if they decide not to fund you, you're screwed, you know? Totally. Yeah. But of course, some people, their business truly is that kind of blue ocean. Yeah. Yeah. Then to me, of course, by all means, those have always existed, but they've always yeah. been very few. It shouldn't have been so many. Yeah. yeah. I think it's the self-awareness about whether this is really the one that can go all the way. And then the capital should fit that business approach. Correct. But yeah. it's hard to say. La. It's and hard, really it's stick, to feel, la. You so. have to be honest with yourself. Yeah. It's very hard to be very yeah. honest with yourself as a founder. So I think this is where, this is one we see as one of our roles. La. So we, I mean, we yeah. have 50. So some of them are pretty large. They are uh, worth yeah. a few hundred million. So we try to tell the founders our side viewpoint with data and show them comparable, show them data. The interesting thing is because I do a lot of listed market stuff. So I always right. compare to the listed market. And I think sometimes it's a wake-up call because sometimes the founders, they surround themselves, especially the larger ones. The board is all friendly to them, right? right? Especially after the last <laughs> 10 years. So when they talk to the board members, it's a bit of an echo chamber. And sometimes the board people are not entrepreneurs. They are actually representatives of large institutional funds. So their right. way of thinking also very different. So we try to give the extra viewpoint and then we leave it to the founders yeah. to decide. Right. And, and that's also why, I don't know whether Ning Shen, like, we will never invest more than two, three hundred people per company. Because right. I know at the end of the day, the founders are boss so they decide yeah and you can yeah. always ignore what we are saying right? and what's interesting is that you talk a little bit about your own comparison of the public markets versus i think what you're seeing today and actually that's what i really appreciate about your analysis i think there's very little 
technical analysis of Southeast Asia ecosystem. And I think your blog does a really good job comparing and also talking about the insights. So how do you read? What do you compare? Are you reading like the prospectus for the IPOs? How do you compare and how does that approach? How do you write one of your blog up posts? Or is this just because you're already thinking about it all the time? Yeah, I'm thinking about it all the time. So I mean, if you, yeah. people don't change. So right. Jamie, I told you I was obsessed about my business. So what do you think yeah, I'm obsessed yeah, yeah. about nowadays? I had to transplant <laughs> all that love for thinking and digging deep right. to something else. So I've transplanted it into portfolio management. So yeah, I read, I mean, Kylie, I don't know you know Kylie, but finally he calls me Accra man. So I used to read Accra reports for fun just to analyze every startup that publishes so that I can see what's the benchmark, what's normal. So if you do the same for listed stocks, for non-listed stuff. After that, they actually, there are a lot of things to connect, right? right? And you start to realize that the capitalist market is very interesting. There's always a rationale underpinning for everything. The variance on both sides between the ultra risk takers who couldn't care less yeah. and the super conservative yeah. is so large. And it just keeps swinging yeah, yeah. back and forth between the two. Yeah. Right. So yeah, so where I get inspiration is because I think about the topic a lot and I'm invested mm. in so many of them. Right. I do right. listed stuff, I do unlisted stuff. So it's in my interest to always try to figure out what's fair value, what's potential right. growth, and things like that. Right. Yeah. So I'm just curious, has there been like a favorite prospectus that you've ever read or like your favorite report that you've read of any company actually I don't read the whole reports I jump very fast so I just go to the financials and look at if it's a listed stock Ah. in the stock charts not for technical analysis just so that I know how it's been trading but I guess I do a simplified one in my head it's not easy to on the listed side even though I'm academically very keen my results aren't great I'm a publisher I'm doing 9-10% per annum that's beating ACWI but actually I could have just bought Q and do much better yeah, so yeah, yeah. I'm very mindful that I'm not a great investment manager. I like Warren Buffett right. or Peter right. Lynch. So I'm very mindful yeah, what yeah. I'm good and not good at. So in fact, yeah. last 10 years, we tried to beat, we failed to beat. So yeah. the next 10 years, our understanding is we'll just index most of it. And then I just ah, keep a handful of stocks that I pay attention to. Yeah. And then we actually focus more our effort on the non-listed side. Because the startup side on paper is doing very well. So we want to carry on picking and spending our time there. That's where you have some of the proprietary knowledge and the kind of like yeah, velocity I got more of edge, knowledge. Right? You got network. You, yeah. yeah. You know the place. And then of course, once you couple with understanding how the listed side works, it helps a lot. Yeah. Right. Yeah. 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 Now that's really interesting. You know, thank you for sharing actually your investment strategy shift. Actually, that's something I also think about as well. I also mostly index most yes. of my stuff and then I focus on Southeast That's very wise. Because I understand Southeast Asia. Yeah. You yeah. yeah, I've learned that you can't be good at everything. Yeah. So you'll be very lucky yeah. if you can be good at one thing. That's why we always tell yeah. each other. So we say, we were lucky. <laughs> we only got one business exit. They got good at yeah. one thing. So are we sure yeah. we're good at angel? Then, then for sure, <laughs> we can't be good at angel and good at public investing. I mean, like, I mean right. like, God, what kind of, how greedy do you want to be? Just pro at everything, right? Um, yeah, I cannot be one. Yeah, yeah. And so I think a lot of folks, they talk about being good at angel investing. I think obviously there's a lot of rookie mistakes that angel investors make in the early days, etc. But what do you think distinguishes maybe a good angel investor versus a great angel investor? How do you think about that skill gap between advanced to a professional? Honestly, I don't know. I don't have an yeah. answer to that. I can tell you what separates experience one who probably gets decent returns decent means maybe 3x over 10 years so IRR around 20 plus percent I think between that and a person who just dabbles because our ecosystem right now still a lot of people just dabbling meaning they do 5-10 stories then that's it I think the difference is that the experienced one will create a structure a system to pick 
Right. It's a standard right. checklist that they adhere to. Experienced yeah. one would have standardized bite sizing, not subject right. to pure emotion at that point. So if I do 100, I do 100 for everyone. And then right. signals on whether it's worth following or not for the next rounds mm. after that. Right. And also when to exit. That, that's what the right. experienced investor, angel investor I feel will do. And that will allow them to at least match the market or maybe beat the VC because there's no 220 cost. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because I think an angel should just benchmark to whatever VC does but remove the 220. Right. And then hopefully yeah, a top right. quota or at least above the median. Right. So I think a good angel will do all that. Great, yeah. I don't know. Because I read Jason Kalagnis, I mean, locally, Kobogui, I met up with him, yeah. I've seen what he invests. Seems to be a bit of luck. You've got to hit that yeah. one super winner and then suddenly everything looks fine. Yeah. So I'm not <laughs> sure where it sits. Where, you know, it's right. or rather, I don't know what makes it great from good. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. I think you mentioned a bit about luck and I think I agree with you. You're structuring the portfolio to give yourself enough surface area for that luck to come through. One interesting question someone was asking me recently was like, hey, Jeremy, is a venture capital a viable asset class in Southeast Asia? And what I mean by that is just, okay, I think there's a good set of angel returns that make sense because you're coming at the earlier stage and there are multiple ways to exit at the trade sale, acquisition, maybe even some may go public like C and Grab. But I think obviously you've been an LP in VC funds as well. And then that's a two and 20 structure, but also often aiming primarily for an exit structure as well. So I'm kind of curious if you think about that, how do you think about the asset class? Yeah, I think they have done whatever we expected. So Neil and I started yeah. investing the first funds as early as 2013. That means yeah. Durian Fund 1, Mangs Hill Fund 1, yeah. Jungle Fund 1. So right. back then, our thesis was the ecosystem would grow and would do very right. well because right. we could see that way off the cusp of it. And it turned out to be true, right? Maybe yeah. the only part that is not true is the deep tech side. Mm. The one came, they yeah. still work in progress. I think yeah. what we didn't expect was that the exits would take so long because, right. and I, I think it's a function a bit of greed also, lah, right? Everyone was holding yeah. out to make sure that I get my billion dollar exit. No one right. wanted to exit earlier at the sub one billion. So, and by then when COVID hit and then all the things that happened after that, the inflation, then the interest rate going up, I think that kind of did everything by two years, which yeah. then would make all the IRRs quite a lot worse. So now it's really up in the air. Thesis is correct. The performance today is actually not bad. My PC portfolio's right. performance is not bad. It's two point something right. DVBI, which is quite decent. Right. That's the plan. Yeah. But the biggest issue is where is the DPI? Where's the distributed capital? Yeah, right. And if that doesn't happen, then I think our ecosystem has a big problem. But I still, I actually feel quite confident it will happen in another one, two yeah. years time. Yeah. It's not blind confidence because we can see some yeah. of the winners in the portfolio are already at a right. billion dollar mark and you just yeah. need to scale a bit further yeah. or they need public markets to turn positive a bit more. Yeah. I think it's interesting also you talk a little bit about mark to market, mark to book in terms of the assets that's out there and your prior analysis. And I think what's interesting is that you did the past 10 years and now you're looking down the pipe for the next 10 years. And I'm just curious what you think what the next 10 years looks like, right? From your perspective. I mean, for me, for example, I was in Manila over the past week. So it's interesting to see the Philippines 10 years ago, nobody was talking about the Philippines. Now people are starting to explore, be curious about the ecosystem. Yeah. So I'm curious what you see, like when you look at the next 10 years, 20, 30s, what do you think about that? Yeah, yeah I mean, we are a capitalist. So right. fundamentally, I believe in enterprise as a way to create value and to meet people's needs. So I think that won't change, but the world mm. is splitting. So this 
split between the Western world and China is quite disturbing. Right? And you can see why right, showing right. up in all the trade mm. restrictions they're giving to each other. Right. It's showing right. up in stock prices of Chinese stocks. So I think that will be one big trend that will determine a lot of how Southeast Asia can grow. Though some people will say we are poised to benefit either way, which is, there's some truth to it. Right. But too much of a conflict between the two sides would necessarily give us problems, especially mm-hmm. if Taiwan gets paid and so I think that will right. throw everything will crash for a while. And you can see it, right? The West already says China is uninvestable. That's why the stocks can't mm-hmm. move because all the capital yeah. has been withdrawn. Not of it anyway. So to me, our region is fine. We've got good demographics. Singapore's strategy of being the governance and fundraising center of Southeast Asia is working yeah. very well. And our government right. is a competitive advantage. But I think right. the factors that are out of our control is the two big blocks how they resolve and handle their differences. I think that will affect us a lot. Other than that, the other, the more positive one would be, I think the whole use of generative AI and AI is large. When we saw it, we quickly arranged quite a few experts to come and speak to all our members because we wanted to figure out what can we buy. And and then we realized that this is different from the first boom. The first boom created Amazon, created Google, created Facebook, or Facebook later. But it created new giants conquer the Western business world. But this one, after a lot of analysis, we actually think the winners will be the existing giants and will also be the existing big firms that can take advantage of digitization and the AI push to digitization. So that means buying more SPY and QLA because Mm. these are the biggest (laughs) firms that will benefit once they implement generative AI. Yeah, But I do think that one's a multi-year trend because we invested in some startups that do more basic machine learning AI as applied Mm. to specific use cases. It's really quite a game changer. You are improving how right. humans do things by many false productivity in some. You find things that humans don't do anyway. So it's quite cool. Yeah, I think that's a yeah. very big one. It's probably as big as the mobile when the iPhone came out, the mobile ecosystems, and then of course the very first boom of the internet itself. This third one of AI, I think it's equally big. Yeah, I think it's a big boom as well. I think recently my mom had a wallet stolen at a yoga studio and then I had to help her write a complaint letter and then I used ChatGPT to draft it up. Just put the details. Yeah. I mean, obviously I could have written the whole complaint letter myself, but then I just finished it in about, I don't know, say 15 minutes, including edits. Uh, yeah, definitely. It's not yeah. just generative AI, like, right? Just the one that takes everyone's imagination, but it's happening right. everywhere because I'm involved in a lot of volunteer work also. And you yeah. know, I can see schools looking at AI to create yeah. students' essays. Yeah. They're using an AI to check that the students didn't use AI. There's actually such yeah. a software yeah. being sold already. They have AIs for Zoom learning to make sure the students are paying attention. Right. So many use cases apply to almost everything. So how can that not right. be transformative? Confirm it will right. transform a lot of things. Yeah. And I think what's interesting is that obviously you're a parent as well, right? And I'm thinking about my kids as well. Like when they grow up, they're going to live in an age of native AI. They're going to be AI native in the sense that I grew up mobile native because I always had a mobile phone. And a bit of a head scratcher because also I'm getting a lot of advice. My my kids should be screen free for as long as possible, as much nature, time, etc. So I don't know what the right balance is. What do you think? We also don't know. But what Ning and I do is we do allow screens, but only from a certain age onwards to have their own iPhone. We control their downloads so that yeah. only after 16, 17, then you can download whatever you want. I think balance, because right? the human is yeah. an analog thing. So 
we want our children to still know what it means to go play in the garden, to go run, to play right. basketball. Yeah. At the same time, we also don't want them to be ludites, la, that they don't know how to use <laughs> software, cannot be. La. But I think, yeah, we want well-balanced kids, right? How old are your kids, yeah. actually? Oh, I got one three-year-old girl and one one-year-old girl. Oh, yeah. okay. Yep. That's really early. The three-year-old, our youngest, started using screens at three, four years old. Because by then, it's a losing yeah. battle already. Yeah, she's always watching us and then she uses our phone. So she always takes her Lego, her blocks and pretends that she's a handful, pretending she's doing a selfie, pretending she's taking camera videos of other people. I do want to yeah. share, Jeremy, a bit about, because I know I deal with a lot of founders. And a lot of founders right. are like me last time. We just think right. of making the business work, selling it, and then that's it. Yeah. Done. Actually, it would be helpful to also work out with your co-founders Right. How, yeah. how do you all want to exit? Yeah. And how do the numbers look like? And then personally, each person should try to think about what they're going to do after that. Especially if you're doing it young. I mean, if you end at 60, it's fine. You can join all the other retirees, travel around the world, look after grandchildren. But if you stop at 30s or 40s, it is helpful to actually apply the same rigor that you applied to your business mm. and apply yeah. it to what will you activities and what purposes you want to do after you retire. Just apply yeah. the same level of rigor or half the level of rigor, you probably have a great plan for retirement. Just don't do it blind. Most people do it blind. That's the interesting thing. It's you run a marathon and you finally cross the finish line, you pocket your 50 mil or whatever. Like, then you say, it's like, suddenly there's a huge emptiness. It right. doesn't have to be that way if you are more thoughtful yeah. about it in the last one, two years. That's what I want to say to the audience. Because a lot of founders, I mean, I also was said about these things to my founders until I know they are near exit or they happen to ask yeah. me. Yeah, and I think you mentioned there's something that you want to share, right? It's about how to plan or how, what's it like to be on the other side? Because you, you know, once that race is yeah. done, right? What do you want to share about what's it like to be on the yeah, other side? Yeah, so I think a lot of, I think a lot of it is about identity. So I think if mm. you meet me and Nick, we are both quite thoughtful people. Right debate a lot and we are quite balanced we are not those very unbalanced individuals right. that do really great businesses actually but we are very balanced people so I think what shocked us was that we didn't expect that the loss of identity to be such a big problem even mm. though it, academically you can read about it yeah, so yeah. it's actually very important that if you, within the first few months of course you can take it easy don't anyhow invest yeah. in stuff and one, everyone can tell you that so it's almost always true yeah. don't anyhow buy stuff because <laughs> almost sure lose money in the beginning right? and almost yeah, certainly yeah. you'll be over so yeah. then after that, actually, the key thing is to think carefully, to start to get yourself exposed to different activities. So it would be great if you already had an activity before yeah. sale. But highly unlikely, if you are truly obsessive entrepreneur, chances are you have no activity. Mm -hmm. You can't really be a, building a super giant and then having too much CCAs. Right. But possible, yeah. la, but rare. La. So you need to try, you need to be mindful that suddenly the world will not care about you. The mm. world will not care what you've done. They'll just see another rich guy. There are plenty of rich guys and ladies out there. Right, right. So, then how did you carve out a space for yourself? So for me and Nick, we tried right. not volunteer work. We tried starting mm. another business. She started one, mm. I started one. All failed. Volunteer work, still doing, quite meaningful. Mm. Then you try to find a team. So some right. people can find a team in sports. For me, it's education, education mm. and entrepreneurship. Right. And this is after a few years, I decided to collapse all the volunteer work plus even the angels and draw work into it. It has to fit into one of these two teams, right? Mm. Then, then it also helps because when you consolidate your thoughts and your efforts in a team, then assuming you do a good job, more and more people know about you, then you call you to do more and more on this topic. Then after right. a while, it becomes like, oh, you found a new second 
identity. Mm. So like for me and me, it becomes like we found a new identity as, oh, we are angel investors, but not just that, but we teach people how to angel invest and we make it into something. Mm. Right. And then from actually government's point of view is I'm quite involved in a lot of MOE stuff, right? So they see it as, mm. oh yeah, the Shin cares a lot about education. So, you know, got volunteer mm. work education, you call him. And he cares yeah. a lot about startups also. So sometimes they call me about that also. Right. So you right. try to build, yeah. And it can be none of these things. It can be something else altogether. Some people go farming, right? Go build a farm. Yeah. <laughs> go right. take it all, fly to Bali, yeah. buy an organic farm and do it. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah, but it's hard to do um, nothing at on, all. That one doesn't work. Yeah, hard to do nothing. Yeah, I just want to say that a lot of people think it can on do that, nothing. I think it's very hard. Yeah. On that note, could you share about a time that you personally have been brave? Yeah, we're talking about this. I think the bravest thing was when we decided to sell the business uh, because it's mm. giving up something that we built for fourteen years already, and to say that oh, okay, then after that I'm going to walk away somewhere. I don't stay on. And actually, mm. that one I learned because I heard other people, other seniors actually tell me that once you sell don't have any expectations of what happens next because very frequently the yeah. new buyer may do very different things and that actually got me thinking even further then might as well don't even stay to see it happen so after that we went through a pretty tough year once we exit completely my mother had cancer we had a fourth kid well a lot of things mm. happened at one go so i think it was a correct decision because sometimes you have to disrupt yourself like if you don't disrupt yourself you can't move on to the next phase and I've seen a lot of 70, 60-year-old patriarchs still holding on to their business. Mm. Very fulfilled, obviously, if you ask them. Yeah. But I felt that yeah. I didn't want it that way. Like. Then my children also all start yeah. business and all that. Yeah. When you say about disrupt yourself, how do you feel about it now? I mean, at the time, it must have been quite I don't know, turbulent to disrupt yourself. But now you're, you shared about how you have a new identity as well. Like looking back on your life journey, how do you feel about that now? Yeah, so back then, I think maybe to express it better was because I'm quite intellectual. So I told myself I have to be more than just a business. I have to be more than an entrepreneur, right? I, I don't want yeah. to be defined as an entrepreneur. So selling mm, it away and walking away is the best way to break it. Prove to myself right. that I can break it. And of course, I'm not stupid. I make sure it's more than enough money already. So now we are, I'm thinking, I'm trying to convince everyone that the next step should be I should uproot and go somewhere else and stay mm. somewhere else. Right? Because my three yeah. children are almost grown up. Yeah. I only have the fourth right. one. He can yeah. study in international school somewhere. Maybe it's yeah. time to disrupt our life again. Because yeah. every time you disrupt, you learn a lot of new stuff. It can be turbulent, right. but you learn a lot of stuff right. Right? Right. about yourself, about a new area. In our case, it's angel investing, this whole mindset of right. how to right. be a supporter and yet don't lose yeah. out and yet don't get screwed <laughs> in the process. Yeah, so right. I, I actually feel that at 48, it's time to maybe by early 50s, I should disrupt one more time. Then after that, I'll be just yeah. like any other retiree at 60 plus. Wow. I think it's quite respectable for you to even say, hey, I want to disrupt yourself one more time in the future. Wow. So, so make it part of the fun, Jeremy. Otherwise, yeah. you're forever doing the same thing. Unless yeah. the same thing is so fulfilling and so purposeful. Yeah. I mean, if you are a political leader, a minister, then I think you better don't disrupt yourself because if you are doing a good job, you are impacting so many lives. But right. for me, I'm only impacting my own family the small circle, right. I can continue to do the same. But maybe if I decide and do something else, I'll be reaching a new circle, doing something else. Yeah, wow. That's really a lot of food for thought there. On that note, I'd love to wrap things up and share about the three things that I took away from this. First of all, thanks for sharing about your early journey as an engineer, but also as a founder. And I thought it was interesting to hear about you describing yourself as obsessive, as competitive, as the third mover, as someone who was fighting to win. And also, I think sharing about how you're building this with Xiaoning, right? Your then girlfriend, now wife. And I thought it was really interesting to share about some of the challenges that you faced in those days, but also I think how much you cared about winning and trying to take care of the business, but also still figuring out how to take care of your partner at 
the same time as well. Thank you for being so honest and frank about your past self. Secondly, thanks so much for sharing about the identity shift. I think we talked a little bit about how you shifted identity and now you have a second identity in terms of being an angel investor, in terms of being a parent, in terms of how you want to raise your children and also how you care about education and volunteering. And I think it was more of a mixture of your own personal stories, but also I think advice to other people about what's on the other side and not to do nothing, but to go and do something and don't buy anything expensive in the first few months. All the good advice is there. (laughs) Don't invest in anything expensive. rent don't buy here yeah. and lastly i think thanks so much for actually sharing a lot of, i think i think honestly i think i think say a tactical advice but also i think a his- historical view over southeast asia over the past 10 years from a angel investor but also as a vc fund lp perspective so seeing that growth seeing that dynamic in terms of not just growth in terms of the number of companies not just growth in terms of the countries but also i think you said growth in the quality and the quantity of the talent that's out there over the past 10 years so i think it's really great to see that view but also good to hear about your perspective on next 10 years, which is about in the short term, making sure there's exits, but also making sure that there's so much more technology change that's happening with generative AI and so, so forth that you're excited about. And also crazy that you're on a search to potentially disrupt yourself again one more time. I think that was scary to me, but I'm not there yet. So <laughs> Maybe when I'm there, I'm going to ask for some more advice from you at that point. No? Yeah, it could be just a classic midlife crisis. Like I was 48. Maybe, yeah, <laughs> all white. So. Yeah, I'll, I'll, for sure, I'll WhatsApp you and I cross that bridge. Also. Awesome. Thanks so much, Dajing, for sharing. Yeah, thank you so much, Jeremy. It was a pleasure speaking with you and I hope that the interview is useful to everybody. Thank you for listening to Brave. If you enjoyed this episode, please share the podcast with your friends and colleagues. We would also appreciate you leaving a rating or review. Head over to www.bravesea.com for member content, resources, and community. Stay well and stay brave.